Well, this summer I've been leading us through uh, an occasional series going through 1 Samuel. Well, we are going to take a little detour this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in 1 Samuel later this year. Uh, but this morning we are going to be uh, in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, here at the start of a new fall semester, a new school year, uh, I want us to stop and think about our identity as Christians. You know, this is something that Peter thought a lot about. Uh, he was an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was one of the first leaders in the church. And as he saw Christianity grow uh, as this sort of wonderful movement uh, among the Jewish people, he was so excited. He was so thankful. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. He had poured his spirit out among his people. But as the movement carried on, surprisingly, by around 60 AD, uh, Jewish Christianity had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, due to persecution. Uh, not only that, but the Jews had largely rejected Christianity. Uh, in fact, many Gentiles were turning to Christ. And so, uh, amazingly, these Christian congregations throughout the Roman Empire were now made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And, and these congregations cut across all kinds of social, social lines. You had men and women. You had masters and slaves. You had rich and the poor, all in one congregation. And as Christianity grew, uh, it was becoming clear that this was not just a, a sect of Judaism. No, this was, this was something different. Something new was starting up. And now the question that everybody was asking was, who are these Christians? Who are these people? Uh, there were all kinds of rumors floating about these Christians. After all, they met uh, while it was still dark, usually early in the mornings or, or late at night. Uh, there were rumors that these Christians were immoral people. Some people had heard that they were cannibalistic. They talked about eating flesh and drinking blood. Some people heard that they worshipped a, a condemned criminal. And, you know, of course, you can be suspicious about these Christians because they never took part in the festivals to the emperor and to the, to the fellow gods. You know, were they even really loyal to the empire? You know, when we read about these earliest Christians, we find them to be in a difficult situation, right? They were misunderstood, slandered, mocked. They were perhaps seen as enemies of the state. They were often on the underside of normal society. Well, I think 2,000 years later, the situation for Christians all over the world really hasn't changed very much. Uh, from, from Christians in China to Afghanistan, even here to the secular West, all kinds of people are asking, who are these Christians? And all kinds of wrong understanding, understandings uh, abound. Well, the world may be asking, who are these Christians? But I think even more important than what the world thinks is what we think, right? Uh, the, the world is going to think what it thinks. But Christian, how would you answer that question? Who are these Christians? 
Well, turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I don't have the page number in the Pew Bible. Can somebody yell that out? 1014 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter is writing to early Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this is the question that he wants to answer. Again, not for unbelievers. They're always going to think what they think. But he wants Christians to make sure that they understand who they are. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, I want us for our sermon here to answer again that one question. Who are these Christians? And in this passage, we see three glorious answers. Number one, we are the new temple of God. We are the new temple of God. Number two, we trust the cornerstone. We trust the cornerstone. And number three, we are God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't always have a clear view of what God is doing among his people every day. Uh, it's so much easier for me to be distracted to be impressed by other things. But I pray that as we study this passage, we would all walk away from here with a deeper sense of who we are in Christ and, and a deeper courage then to live in this world as his people. All right, so number one, we are the new temple of God. That's what we see in verses four through five. You know, in the previous section, <clears throat> Peter describes how these believers have been born again through the imperishable seed of the word of God, that they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And now as those who have come to Christ, the living stone by faith, they are being changed. Uh, they, they are united to Christ and they're being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is the living stone, the one rejected by men, but chosen by God. But we Christians are also living stones. Do you see that? Number five, you, verse five, you yourselves like living stones. Uh, in, in the next section, Peter is going to talk about how Christ is the, is the cornerstone, the living stone. But here he's talking about Christians, right? Christians are living stones. How? 
by faith in the one true living stone, Jesus Christ. You know, faith in Christ changes us. Yes, God's love is unconditional, but God's love does not leave us in our sinful condition. No, it transforms us from the inside and slowly but surely we are changed into the image of Christ. As you come to Christ, the living stone, you too are being made into living stones. And now as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house, right? The point of becoming a living stone is not so you can lie in a field all by yourself as a, as a brick. Uh, that's called being rubble, right? That's not being a house. No, we are not rubble. We are living stones that are being joined together into a spiritual house. Our, ident- our individual identity as followers of Christ is now joined to our corporate identity as a spiritual house. In other words, what Peter is saying here is that we are being formed into a new temple of God. Now, for us to realize what he's saying here, we have to realize what an amazing thing, what an amazing statement that would have been for Peter to make. Right? You have to put yourself in the shoes of this largely Jewish audience that he was writing to in his day. And a lot of these Jews would have had fond memories right, of their annual trips to Jerusalem. Right? They would have remembered the, the grandeur and the beauty of the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and that temple was not just sort of a, a cultural Jewish experience. No, it stood as this assurance that God had chosen Israel. Right? And, and the proof of that, that God had chosen Israel, was that God dwelled with his people. He, he, he descended from heaven. He came down on Mount Sinai after the people had left Egypt. And there on Sinai, the thunder and the smoke grew. And then as the people built a tabernacle, God's presence came down from Sinai and rested in the tabernacle. And as God's people wandered through the wilderness, God wandered with them until the day they landed in Jerusalem, uh, in Israel, until the day Solomon built a temple and God's glory rested there in the temple. For Peter to say that these Christians are now that temple where God dwells, that would have sounded audacious. I mean, that would have sounded probably even blasphemous, right? Because they're not in Jerusalem. They're scattered all over the Roman Empire. They don't follow the law of Moses anymore. They, they gather on the first day of the week. These Gentile believers who are with them aren't even circumcised. And yet Peter here is telling them, forget Moses. <laughs> forget Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, you have Christ. And you, the church, are the new temple of God. You want assurance that God has chosen you? You want assurance that God's presence is here on earth? Look at the church. That's where God's spirit dwells. And the proof of it is in your transformed lives. You are living stones built into the new temple of God. God's temple here in the year 2021 is not being built by wood and stone. 
No, it is being built by born-again, spirit-filled people. And just as the, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelled, today the place where God's word reigns, the place where God's spirit dwells, is in the church. You know, Peter is probably writing this letter sometime around 60 AD. In, in just a decade, the temple in Jerusalem will be burned to the ground. But that temple, that building, was never the culmination of God's promises. No, God is building a far better temple, one made of living stones. So, friends, you want to know where God dwells here on earth? He dwells with his people, He dwells with the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the universal church, right? That, that body of Christians from all places at all times, that church that has not yet gathered, that church will gather when Christ returns. We look forward to that day. No, when I say church, I mean the local church. I mean wherever God's word is rightly preached, wherever his ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly observed and kept, even us the congregation at Warnall Road Baptist Church. Again, not this building, right? but the people. The people, the congregation. We are the new temple of God. This is where the Spirit dwells. This is where God's word reigns. What happens among us week in and week out is the fulfillment of all that we see there in the Old Testament with the temple. Well, if you're, if you're going to have a temple, then you have to have a priesthood. And not only are Christians living stones, but we, Peter says here, are a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, think about how hard it was to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God back in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, the, the priests had to come from a certain tribe. Uh, they had to be ritually consecrated. Their blood, I mean, their, their clothes and their bodies had to be washed. They had to be sprinkled with blood. The, the, the sacrifices had to be order, offered in a certain order, in a certain place, at a certain time. The animals had to be a certain kind of animal. If you offered anything outside of what God had commanded and prescribed, you were probably toast, right? You'd probably die. Well, here... These Christians, these, these Jews and Gentiles from all over the world, men and women, rich and poor, they here offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Really? As frail and imperfect and, and weak as we are? How do we do that? Well, there's only one requirement. Through Jesus Christ, Peter says. All those priestly requirements and sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one perfect high priest, and he is the one perfect sacrifice. Now, through faith in Christ, we rest in his finished work. We are united to him, and God accepts, and he delights in the humble and thankful sacrifice of his people. Friends, marvel at what Peter is saying here. Peter, of all people, knew what a big deal the temple and the priesthood were. When, when Jesus was on earth with his disciples at the temple, 
One of them, it could have very well been Peter, one of them said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. But now Peter is looking at these Christians who are trusting in Christ and are indwelt by his spirit. And to us, he says, look at these Christians. What wonderful stones. Look at the church. What a wonderful building. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you're ever tempted to minimize the church. You know, we gather here week after week. And it can all be so familiar. Maybe even unimpressive. We, we know the struggles that we face here in our congregation. We know the hard times that we've been through. We, we look at this building, we see the, the cracked plaster on the ceilings. Um, we see the aging facilities. You know, the, the, the room is not as full as we wish it were sometimes. And not only that, but it's easy for us to be impressed with all kinds of other things, right? We, we admire other large ministries and publishers and seminaries. We admire people with influence on social media who publish books and have followers. You know, we, we wish we could have some of that. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the church, no matter how small, no matter how struggling, if it is a true church, if it is a gospel preaching church, then it is the temple of God. Here in this age before the return of Christ, God's purposes are being fulfilled through the church in big ways and in small ways that we don't even see. We saw a little bit of that even here this morning. Praise God. So brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of the theological meaning of what we are as the church. This isn't just a random meeting of people. No, this is the temple of God built with living stones. And we are also God's holy priesthood here on earth, right? Which means we are the ones on earth who rightly worship God. There are all kinds of false worship going on all around us. And God rejects all of that. But oh, may God be pleased to accept the worship of his people week after week. May he take delight in the worship of our praise. You know, Peter's words there at the end of verse 5 are an important reminder for how we are to worship God. You know, what makes for acceptable sacrifices is not our hard work, is not our discipline, our ability to check off our task lists. No, acceptable sacrifices come only through Jesus Christ. It's as we trust in his finished work, as we rest in God's love for us in Christ, that we offer acceptable sacrifices to God. In other words, don't serve to earn God's favor. Don't serve hoping to make him love you more. No, serve because God has already poured out his favor and proven his love in his son. And we know this to be wonderfully true. As we do that, it's not just our checklists that we give to God. No, we give to God our entire lives in gratitude and in joy. As, as Paul writes in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
The, the kind of sacrifice that God accepts is nothing less than our entire lives, right? Not offered begrudgingly, but through Jesus Christ in joy. That's what God's holy priesthood is up, in this, up to in this world. Uh, we don't confine our worship just to this building, just to this hour. No, we are out there in the world offering our bodies as living sacrifices so that God may use us for his glory in the world. What would that look like for you even this week, right? To, to, to be God's holy priesthood out in the classroom, right? In your kitchen, in your workplace, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus, Who are these Christians, the world asks? We are the new temple of God. Number two, we trust the cornerstone. That's what we see there in verses six through eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter here quotes Isaiah 28 there in verse 6. In Isaiah 28, the people of Jerusalem had made a covenant with death. And they boasted about how they would escape disaster. But this is how God responds. You think you're going to escape disaster? No, I have laid a cornerstone in Zion. And that stone is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. He is that precious chosen cornerstone. The Roman Catholic Church argues that the church is built on Peter. Isn't that weird? Uh, The the Pope today sits in apostolic succession to Peter. And it's on that rock of the Pope that the church is built. Let me just point out that Peter here gives us only two categories of stones, right? There's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and there are living stones, the church. Um, And... Through faith in Christ, every Christian is being made into a living stone. And all those living stones are joined to Christ, the cornerstone, and are being built into a spiritual house, the church. That's it. Those two kinds of stones. Christ, the cornerstone, living stones. So according to this passage, if the Pope is a Christian, he is not uh, any more special a living stone than you or me. Right? Right? Whatever Jesus meant in Matthew 16, he is not taken away from the fact that he alone is the cornerstone of the church. That was a little excursus there. there. Well, it says here that all those who believe on Christ will not be put to shame. What does it mean then to believe on him, on this cornerstone? Well, I think it means trusting in him, trusting in God's precious and chosen son, trusting him rather than anything else. It it means being willing to stake your reputation, stake your life on this stone, risking rejection, risking shame. 
But we see here a promise. For those of you who will do this, you will not be put to shame. You will be honored. Those who trust in the cornerstone will be vindicated on the last day. You know, believing in the cornerstone means that you build on Christ alone. That's the whole point of this image of the cornerstone. Uh, You know, cornerstone. Back in those days when they were constructing a building, laying down the foundation came first. And, you know, they didn't pour cement. No, they, they laid foundation stones down on the ground. And the very, the most important stone was the very first stone that went down. I mean, that was the cornerstone because that was a stone that every other stone was aligned with. Um, that first stone that went down, the cornerstone, had to be absolutely perfect, right? Perfectly even, perfectly level, perfectly secure. If it was crooked or flawed in any way, those flaws would eventually perpetuate throughout the building and that building would crumble. But if you set down a perfect cornerstone, then all the other stones would be properly aligned and the house would be on solid foundation. Well, I love this image of a cornerstone because it's such a wonderful image what it means to trust in Christ. To, come, to trust in Christ is to come to him and to align your life, to, to build on who Christ is and what he has done for you. Yeah, if you decide to make fame your cornerstone, that building is going to fall, right? If you decide to make your family, your cornerstone. Yeah, that building is going to crumble. There is no stone that is perfect enough to sustain the weight of your life. So here is an invitation for us to build our lives on Jesus, to, to, to lay down all of the stones and, and, and of our life according to him, in line with him, in submission to him. You know, are you building your life on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Every part of your life should be connected to Christ and based on him. Right? If, if, you have, if you ever have any part of your life where you're thinking, uh, I'm not sure how that connects to Christ, you should ask some questions, right? I mean, like, let, let's say you want to be a world-famous skydiver. Right? I just made that up. I, I want to be like the best skydiver in the world. Okay, that, that, that may be fine. <laughs> um, but if you're a Christian, just ask yourself the question, what does it have to do with Christ? Right? That's, that's not to say that's necessarily wrong or sinful, but, but if that's what you're pursuing, how does that part of your life align with the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ in your life? Sin, then, is when we refuse to build on Christ. When we disobey his word, you know, Christ says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. But we say, no, no, I, I want to do that. I want to live for my pleasures. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that stone of my life way over here, away from the cornerstone. Christ says, love your enemies. Pray for those who have wronged you. Forgive those who sin against you. But we say, Jesus, you don't know what I've been through. No, I'm going to hold on to my bitterness. 
I'm going to seek revenge. Christ says, don't worry about money. Right? Seek first God's kingdom. But we say, no, God, you know, once I get squared away with all my financial goals, then I'll be generous. Then I'll give to the church. Friends, whenever we try to make our pride or our bitterness or our possessions or we're all, all the even good things of our life, our, our, our children, our health, anything else, we make those things the cornerstone of our lives, sooner or later, it will crumble. It will not stand. Which is why if you've sinned, the repentance and faith is the only way back. Right? If you've messed up, stop trying to find other cornerstones. No, go back to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Leave all those false cornerstones behind and begin building your life on him once again, even with all the broken and messed up pieces of your life. Brothers and sisters, there can only be one cornerstone. Only Jesus is worth building on. You want to take every part of your life and align it to Jesus Christ, staking your very life on him. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And in verse 7, we see a warning. There are those who do not believe. Those who reject Christ. Who are rejecting. Oh, who are tragically rejecting the only cornerstone. Rather than building their lives on him, they are offended by him. They stumble over him and they fall. And what a terrible fall that is. You know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. I want to ask you this. Why have you rejected Jesus? Why do you reject him? You might say, well, that's that's being presumptuous to say that I reject him. Just because I'm not a Christian doesn't mean I'm actively rejecting Jesus. No, I've got no problem with Jesus. I'm a little busy right now with life. But I've got no problem with him. Friend, if Jesus is the cornerstone, indifference is not really an option, right? Uh, to, be, to be indifferent to Jesus is to reject him. To not make a choice about Jesus is to make a choice about Jesus. Friend, for, there are all kinds of reasons for why people are indifferent towards Jesus. And yet for all those reasons, I think actually a lot of people have never really met him. They don't know really who he is. Uh, Very few have ever sat down with an open Bible and read the gospel accounts of his life, heard his teaching, thought about what it is that he came to do. Look, if you're going to reject Jesus, at least really reject him, right? Reject him for who he really is. Don't don't reject some made-up person version of him. And I think once you truly encounter Jesus, well, C.S. Lewis once observed that we really only have a few choices uh, for what to do with Jesus if we really encounter him. Right? You can say that he was a lunatic, uh, somebody who was literally crazy and who went around claiming to forgive sin and be God. Right? If, if we thought that he was crazy, then we can just ignore him. Right? He might as well have claimed that he was a poached egg. Or you might say that he was a liar. Right? In that case, he would have been one of the most evil and wicked 
person that could have ever lived, right? He would have done a blasphemous thing of claiming to be God. And, and all these people who have trusted him, well, they're all deceived, right? Or if he's not a lunatic, if he's not a liar, then he has to be the Lord. Um, that he has to be exactly who he claimed to be, the savior of the world. You know, if you, if you really met Jesus, there is no place for thinking of Jesus as just somebody that you can ignore. Somebody who's just maybe a good teacher, an example among many. No, he never claimed that for himself. We as Christians believe that Jesus was not a liar, that he was not a lunatic. No, he is Lord. He is the cornerstone of this universe. He came and he lived a perfect life. And then he offered that life as a sacrifice on the cross, paying the punishment of our sins. And he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven to reign. And he is coming back to judge the world and to make all things new. And yet before that day, he offers out hope. He offers out grace for all those who will repent of their sins and build their lives on him. They will be forgiven. They will be saved. They will be made into living stones and joined to his people. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would love to arrange a time for you to sit down with somebody here and just read the Gospels and, and, and learn who Jesus is. Meet him so that you can know whether or not you want to follow him or not. So talk to one of us after the service. We'd love to talk to you if, if that would be of help to you. You know, for all those of you who have trusted in Christ, who have built your lives on him, you know, be encouraged. All right, be encouraged. Because all day long, you hear people rejecting Christ, right? You, you, Hollywood is telling you, don't live for Christ, live for yourself, right? Society tells you, don't, don't be so exclusive. It's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way. Perhaps you've had parents or loved ones tell you, you are wasting your life following this Jesus. No, go, go, go get a career, live, live for some greatness. You know, we hear those voices week after week. It's so easy to be discouraged, and if that's you, I want you to be encouraged by this passage. Because you are not alone in your choice of Jesus. Yes, other Christians all around you have chosen Jesus. That's wonderfully true. But I think even more, God has chosen Jesus. God has chosen his son. He is the cornerstone chosen by God and precious to him. God looks at Jesus and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so if you have chosen Jesus, if he is precious to you, know that you have chosen what God has chosen. Right? If God has chosen Christ, then what does it matter that the world has rejected him? No, you are on God's side. They put Jesus to death, but God raised him from the dead. They crowned him with thorns. But God has crowned him with all glory and honor. Oh, friend, if God has chosen Christ, then you are doing the only right thing in building your life on him. Well, this passage ends with a terrible warning. All those who reject Christ think that they've won. They think that they're exercising their freedom to rebel against God. But as it turns out, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As those who are enslaved to sin, all of humanity is destined 
for disobedience and for everlasting judgment unless God intervenes, unless God saves. Which brings us to our last point. Point number three, we are God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. That was, that's what we see there in verses 9 through 10. How is it that we have come to treasure Christ? How is it that we have come to trust him and to build our lives on him? Well, it's because God has chosen us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have become God's people because God has chosen us. We, we deserve nothing of this. We, we, we only deserve his wrath. But God in his kindness has shown mercy to us. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. By making us alive, by uniting us to his son, our sins have been forgiven. And not only that, but now he has made us his people, his possession, his, his holy nation. You know, again, think about how remarkable these words must have been to those first century Christians. Perhaps at one point, these Christians might have been proud to have been Jews, right, of the descendants of Abraham. They, they might have been proud to have been Roman citizens. But now, that identity has been replaced. Their citizenship is no longer with any earthly nation, with any biological people. No, their identity, their citizenship is with a new people, a holy nation belonging to God. An early opponent of Christianity mocked Christians as being, quote, only made up of foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children. Well, I don't think he was entirely wrong, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, I wonder in that first century church, uh, if Christians ever in their gatherings like looked around the room and thought, that's it? <laughs> that's all we've got here? But friends, if you've ever been tempted to think that way, look at how differently God thinks about the church, right? The church, as low as they may be, they are precious to God. They are a chosen race. What does it mean that the church is chosen? I think people sometimes get hung up on this language of God's choice of, of election. I don't think it's really that complicated at all because the, the language of choice is the language of love. Um, most of all, to be chosen means that God has loved the church. God has chosen these people out of all the nations of the world to be his people. Why? Because he loved them. That's it. 
Not, not because they were a certain kind of people or they had this certain kind of quality about them or a certain kind of look or personality. No, simply because God loved them. He chose to love them. He loved them because he loved them. <laughs> uh, the love came from him. Brothers and sisters, if you are a part of the church, know that the only reason you are here is because God has chosen to set his love on you. That's it. That's, that's the only thing that has set you apart. God chose to set his love on you because of his gracious love. And not only that, you're not only a chosen people, but you're a royal priesthood. In the first point, we saw the church as a holy priesthood offering sacrifices. But here, she is a royal priesthood. Uh, we are a nation of king priests who rule with Christ, who represent God before this fallen world. Yes, not many of you were of noble birth. But even so, the church, you are a nation of king priests and queen priests. We represent God in this world, and we exercise his reign in this world. And you are a holy nation. Even today, Jesus Christ is Lord, and as Lord, he has a kingdom. The whole universe is his kingdom. Every earthly kingdom today that refuses to acknowledge his reign exists in rebellion against him. But the church, no, the church submits to his reign. His word is supreme in our lives. His word is supreme in our gatherings. And today, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we live among other earthly kingdoms. You know, Jesus commands us to be subject to earthly kings and governments. And yet, here we live. You know, as one scholar has said, it's as if the church is like this time machine from the future. Right? Uh, we are citizens of a future kingdom. And yet somehow we've been transported here into the present, to the year 2021. And we are living in this previous portion of human history where Christ's reign has not yet been established in this world. And yet we belong to him. And so we live in this world as citizens of that future kingdom. We, we, we love one another as citizens of that future kingdom will one day love one another. Now, we worship our king and follow his word, even as we will do the same thing in that future kingdom. And this world, they look at us. They don't know what to do with us. And yet, even so, we seek to live at peace with this world. And we tell them, hey, we belong to that kingdom. And one day our king is coming and the whole world will be made into that kingdom. We look forward to that day. Our true citizenship is there. And for all of eternity, we will be shown not only to be a holy nation, but God's special possession, his inheritance, his portion, his delight. Just as God delights in his son, so he will delight in his people. We will be, he will be our God and we will be his people. Friends, what this section teaches us is that the church is God's new Israel. God loves the church. Think about how much God loved Israel in the Old Testament, how he covenanted himself to her, how he patiently bore with her, how he tenderly led her through the wilderness, how he protected her and provided for her. Think of how the prophets like Hosea and Isaiah described God's covenant with Israel like a marriage. 
Friend, all that love that God had for Israel, that was only a shadow. No, God's love for the church through Jesus Christ is the reality. The old covenant failed, but the new covenant of Christ will never fail. We are his chosen people. We are his special possession. As Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in her books, God will always love us with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The world looks at Christians and they scoff. They slander us. They mock us. They even persecute us. But as far as God is concerned, we are his. We are his chosen people. He delights in us because he delights in his son. And he is not ashamed to call us his people. Brothers and sisters, looking at this passage, God wants us to believe that he loves us. That's it. That's the application. God wants us to believe that he loves us, that, that we actually stop wondering whether or not he has chosen us, whether or not he loves us. No, but that we actually believe it. What more could he do to prove his love? He has given us his son. And through his son, he has made us his special possession. We will not live in the world as we ought unless we are convinced down to our bones that we belong to God, that we are his chosen people. For, I think for those of you who are parents, I think you understand something of how this works, right? I think we all want our kids to know that they are loved. As far as their relationship with me goes, I want my kids to know that they are loved, that they have nothing to prove that they are mine, that they are secure in my love. Even though I didn't choose them to come into my family, man, I enjoy them. I delight in all three of my kids. They crack me up. And if I had a choice, I would choose all three of them all over again. Right? They are precious to me. I want them to know this. And I want them to know this, especially as I send them off into the world, as I send them off to school, to soccer, to camp. Because I know that they're going to hear all kinds of voices of, of temptation and self-doubt and insecurity. They're going to experience failure. They're going to experience defeat. And amid all those difficulties, I long them, for them to know that they are loved, that, that their dad loves them no matter what happens. Perhaps in some way, that helps them to persevere in this world. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't go looking for your worth and what the world thinks about you. Don't go find your worth in what you can build with your own two hands. No, find your worth in being loved by God, by your heavenly Father. You are chosen. You are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. You are loved. Rest in that. And walk out into this world knowing that you belong to him. It is in that confidence that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 9. You know, our job in this world is not just merely to exist. It's not merely just to hold on until Jesus returns. No, we have a mission. We are to proclaim his excellencies to this dying world. And out of all of God's excellencies, the greatest excellency that we are to proclaim is his grace. It's his grace. That's what we see in verses 10. In verse 10. 
We are those who have come to know the grace that calls sinners out of darkness into his light. The grace that lavishes mercy on those who don't deserve mercy. The grace of those who have been lost in their sins forever, if not for God's gracious call. It is this grace that makes us his beloved people. Oh, Christian, tell the world about the excellency of God's grace. You know, evangelism is not this kind of burdensome task that we've been given. You know, we often think of it like we're trying to make a sales pitch for like some random product that we know nothing about, like as if we're selling steak knives or solar panels or something. No, evangelism is not that. Evangelism is talking about the grace that has saved you. The grace that has saved you. It's talking about God's excellencies as you have seen them. Which means if you're a Christian, if you just became a Christian yesterday, you are ready to talk about God's excellencies. Uh, Yes, there's always more that you can learn, but tell others what you know if you're a Christian. I, I think this is why newer Christians are often the best evangelists. Because they don't know much, but what they do know, they gladly tell those who are around them. You know, as, as you, um, you know, these, these new Christians, they know their sin. They know the mercy that they received. And when they talk about it, it's real to them, right? But the longer you've been a Christian, the more that you start learning like technical jargon, you learn these outlines, you start to speak in Christian knees, like words that people, other people use, but you don't really even know what that means. And the more that our conversation then about Christ becomes impersonal and distant. Soon we find ourselves going through the motions when we talk about Christ like we're making a sales pitch. You know, I remember one time I was in a group where I had a chance to talk about my testimony. And I've told my testimony many times. I've told the story of my conversion. And as I was telling it, I caught myself like even starting to bore myself right? Somebody probably yawned as I was telling the story. And I thought, look, don't, don't just go through the motions. Tell it, tell the story for real, right? Um, tell it as a sinner who, who has been shown mercy. Um, and, and there, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of my sin that I knew very deeply. I was reminded of of all my friends who heard the same gospel but walked away. I was reminded of how kind God was to surround me with believing parents. I was reminded of that faithful preacher who preached the gospel simply so that I could understand it. And God gave me eyes to to hear and to believe. And as as I remembered that once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy... I began to tell my testimony and I began to share the gospel with genuine gratitude, with genuine thankfulness in my heart. And I could tell that those who are listening to me now notice, hey, there's something here. He's talking about something that really matters. That opened the door for me to talk about the gospel. Friend, when sharing the gospel, don't just go through the motions. Once you are not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Talk about that. Talk about God's excellencies. 
Tell people about Jesus who laid down his life to save you. Talk about how God had mercy on you. Proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. There are people today in your life who are asking, who are these Christians? They've heard rumors. They've read false teachings. They've had bad impressions from the past. They have all kinds of wrong ideas. They don't know that Christians are the new temple of God. They don't know that Christians are God's chosen people. Even more, they have never met Jesus, the cornerstone. But you know what? They know you. So Christian, what will the world learn about Christ from watching your life? What will you tell them? Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, let's take a moment just to reflect on what we've heard. And you can quietly there in your seat, just respond to God in your own words in prayer. And in just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp these things deep down to our bones by faith. Lord, that we would believe that you dwell in our midst. Lord, that we would believe that you love us. Oh God, we pray that we would be those who build our lives on Christ the cornerstone. That we would ground our belief that you dwell with us, that you love us through our faith in Jesus because we know that he is chosen by you, that he is precious to you, and we have been united to him. Oh God, help us to build our lives on Christ even this week. And Lord, that we would go out into the world, that we would be that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that we would proclaim your excellencies to all those around us. Oh God, be glorified with the acceptable sacrifice of our lives as we trust in your son. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come back quickly, that we may be with you and dwell with you forever. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.